According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow. Uh, turn in your Bibles when we get started in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. You all think I'm cold and heartless, starting at 10 o'clock punctually. I'm actually a slave of the person at the recording desk that holds up two thumbs. When I see two thumbs, I've got to go. All right. You know, I listen to these real slick radio guys, the Chuck Swindolls and David Jeremiah's and these guys and Charles Stanley. And I wonder how, uh, what kind of staff and support they have from uh, radio uh, engineers and so forth and the misstatements and mistakes that get edited out and fixed and glossed over before they ever hit the radio kind of thing. Makes me wonder. Someone will tell me, no, no, there's no editing. It's all just, that's, that's the way they preach. I go, oh, man, that's, <laughs> don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. All right, the man born blind, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. We have covered five points of study, if I am correct. And we'll be ready for points 6, 7, and 8 this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest assembled this morning is filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the blessing that it is for us to have one more opportunity to assemble together. We thank you for each believer that made it out this morning that uh, determined their priority on this day at this time was to study to show themselves approved. We ask for your hand of blessing upon this study that you would set aside distraction and uh, give us maximum concentration, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. We do lift up those who could not be with us this morning. We thank you for the the wonderful uh, uh, answer to prayer in terms of, uh, of Sid's uh, surgery this morning. We thank you for that and uh, pray for the ongoing recovery and process there. Now, Father, uh, bless this time. God, our steady. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I meant to announce that before we started praying, actually, is that uh, while the ladies were all, all in there praying, uh, the, the answer came on the telephone <laughs> about uh, 9.44 is when the answer came, that uh, the procedure went very well. In fact, uh, the, the doctors couldn't have imagined it going any better, that uh, there is now a new hip in place and, uh, and so forth. That's right. That's right. And, of course, there are many parts of the world and many uh, eras of human history when uh, if your hip went bad, that's, that's the hip you had until <laughs> for the rest of your life. You know, the idea that you can get a new hip like that is pretty... Unbelievable. All right. The man born blind, John chapter 9. We've gone through the miracle at this point where um, Jesus put, uh, he spit on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And then he told the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so the man went away and washed. This is uh, an interesting miracle in the, in the steps or the process that's taken because in a lot of other cases, Jesus, with an act of sovereignty, an act of will, just simply heals the man, and there it is. In this application, though, he sets the conditions by which the miracle can be experienced and then leaves it in the man's uh, position to either obey or disobey, to either be healed or not be healed. And uh, fortunately for the man born blind, he uh, obediently went 
and uh, washed where he was told to wash and uh, came back seeing. All right, we've learned that this is an opportunity for lots of people to learn things. Point one, the Man Born Blind episode demonstrates how one person's test can provide instruction to a multitude of individuals. One person goes through it, like with the passing of, uh, of Dina Garrett this past week, but there are multiple facets to the test. Every family member has a facet. Every friend and associate has a facet. The church family has a facet. Neighbors and everyone has a facet. And it becomes a, an evangelism opportunity in, uh, in so many ways. So there are facets to different tests. They are instruction opportunities, lessons that need to be learned. So in our point two, we saw instruction opportunity number one. This was for the disciples. And the matter they had to get cleared up was uh, whose fault was it? Why is this guy blind? Is it his fault or is it his parents' fault? Clearly, no one would be blind if there wasn't sin involved. That's their mind anyway. That uh, Boy, the parents must have been a bunch of sinners. Why was this guy born blind? And he says, you know what? It wasn't because of them. It wasn't because of this man. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God the Father permitted it, even directed it. So that on this occasion, on this date, the uh, work of God the Father could be testified to through the person of Jesus Christ. So point two, we, there were some subpoints there. I won't go back over those. But instruction opportunity number one was Jesus' disciples. Instruction opportunity number two was for the man himself. The man born blind here in verses six and seven. And it is an interesting sequence. And. I don't want to review everything we taught, but much of what we deal with today is going to build on this, so I'll at least hit a couple of points, because there are steps along the way before he comes to understand that Jesus is the Son of God or the Son of Man, depending on the text variant there in verse 35. But he has to um, come to this through a series of stages. All right, So he knows that he's blind, he can't see anybody, but he hears, and he hears the term rabbi in verse 2. The disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned? And so the blind guy is sitting there and he hears the word Rabbi. And he knows that this is a rabbi standing in front of him. And then he hears the testimony about the light of the world in verse 5. This rabbi is talking to his disciples, saying, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so he can't see who it is, but he hears. He hears these words spoken. And the light of the world message, I believe, he's putting together with the message from chapter 8. Meaning that this man who was born blind was actually a participant in the temple um, for the Feast of Tabernacles. In other words, he's positive, he's observant. We'll discuss that here again this morning, the nature between observant and non-observant Jews. So these are the elements that he knows. He also knows that the man's a, uh, a teacher and a prophet. He comes under uh, increasing understanding and the thing is coming up. Now, um, I'm going to skip by some of these other items. Again, I hope you've been chewing on verse 7 that this uh, was an illustration of obedience, that there was a mechanism designated in the procedure that had to be volitionally obeyed. The mechanism designated was designated by sovereignty. Mud to the eyes the location of the pool whereby um, salvation could be obtained or whereby healing could be obtained. And uh, there weren't many paths to this miracle. There was one path to this miracle. It was obedience to the sovereign mechanism that had been delegated. The miracle came into effect upon the volitional obedience to the sovereignly designated 
mechanism. And I believe that's a picture of our salvation in Christ. The mechanism is faith through Jesus Christ. But it's not made effective until the person believes. He does not question who the lot of the world rabbi thinks he is, and he does not balk at the instructions he's been given. He obeys without a word of complaint. Makes him quite a contrast to Naaman the Syrian there in the Old Testament, Second Kings chapter 5. He complained about it. He didn't like the river he was told to go bathe in. He thought that the Syrian rivers were just as good. All right, under point D, we gave the man a name. Instead of calling him the man born blind a hundred times, we call him anablepsis which is uh, Greek for the one who received his sight. After receiving his sight, Anablepsis returned to find the light of the world rabbi had departed. The key is, though, is that he returned. He went back to find the light of the world rabbi. He went back to find the tool that God the Father had delegated to do the miracle. And uh, he will, in fact, find him after a short interval here and come to a uh, realization of who he is and have a worship opportunity at the Lord's feet. All right. Uh, So that's instruction opportunity number three. I'm going to move on through these other items. Uh, Point four. Instruction opportunity number three. If I have this numbered right. There we go. His neighbors and associates. Now, they got the opportunity. They say, well, this is him. No, this is somebody who looks like him. No, that can't be him. How did he get his eyes back? They have lessons to learn. And it's interesting, in their lessons, um, they're almost afraid to learn the lessons uh, without the Pharisees getting involved. And I didn't highlight this last week, but it it sure uh, had me wondering, because uh, as we look at it, the neighbors of those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, well, no, this is like him. No, this is he. And he kept saying, I am the one. And, um, well, they want to know who is, uh, where is he now? I don't know. But now the key thing, I think in verse 13, I did not stress this. They brought him to the Pharisees. They brought him to the Pharisees. Why would they do that? All right. Well, different reasons come to mind. They are the religious leaders. They are the authorities in matters pertaining to God. And uh, since the man born blind here is claiming that a work of God has, uh, has healed him, they're going to take him to the, to the Pharisees. But I also think we're going to start to see elements with his parents here. Now, there's a very real fear at work. And the Pharisee rule is uh, tyrannical, authoritative and tyrannical. And uh, you'll note when we get to his parents here today, there's a fear involved. Verse 22, fear of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was put out of the synagogue. So there's fear at work. And I don't think we can ignore that fear in verse 13 when we read that they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. Um Because even if they accept his testimony, even if they're convinced, wow, this has to be God at work, they can't admit that yet until such time as the Pharisees, the religious leaders, tell them that it's okay. And if the Pharisees say, oh, no, no, this is not the Christ, then they, uh, you see what I'm saying? They're in a bad spot. So they can't admit that this is the Christ until they get permission or until they get uh, the approval from their religious leaders. And at point five, we looked at the Pharisees themselves. 
and uh, the opportunity they had to learn, and they couldn't. This is a failure on their part. In verses 13 through 17, all they can do is uh, confront the man, keep asking the same questions over and over again. In fact, they're handicapped. They're hampered by their own theology. Some of the Pharisees are handicapped by their own theology. To them, Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. And they could not get over that. Never mind the fact that a miracle has been done. Never mind the fact that a man born blind is now seeing. That's never been done before. Um, in their book, they, they, their mind can't even wrap around to the miracle and the glory to God at this point because they can't get past the fact that, oh, it's the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath. And he didn't break the Sabbath as it was revealed in the Bible. He broke the Sabbath as it was written in their rules. It was their Sabbath that he broke. We discussed that a number of times. Remember, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he obviously did not feel that he was breaking his Sabbath when he was obedient to God the Father. We've discussed that before. Imagine it will come up again. So their theology, though, handicaps them. They, they, have a, they have a drum that they're beating, and they can't stop beating that drum long enough to listen to anything else. And it's something to be mindful of because I think every one of us has theological blind spots. And we have to be able to stop and be honest about ourselves and say, what is it that I'm uh, just dismissing out of hand because my theology won't let me look at it? And even if it's uh, and I've got to be I've got to be careful with that. Even if I believe it's wrong, I still have to look at it fairly. Somebody comes up with something and they tell me, well, what do you think about this? And immediately my pre-tribulational dispensational theology says, oh, that's a bunch of garbage. Then I've got to stop and say, now, wait a minute. For the moment, let me go ahead and just take off my theological glasses and look at this from God's viewpoint, from the Bible, using a plain, literal hermeneutic, and see what the Scriptures say. Is this so? Search through it, leaving the theological glasses off, come to the conclusion I come to, put the glasses back on, <laughs> say, see, I knew it. <laughs> All right. But no, honestly, in terms of uh, a great number of things yeah, that... Uh, We've got to make sure that our blind spot isn't uh, just dismissing things out of hand and saying, I'm not going to pay attention to that. You know, Pentecostal wrote that. So, they got truth. I can learn a lot of things. Let's, let's take a look at it. All right. So, this was the Pharisees, and they blew it. And um, others, though, they, they accepted the sign. You couldn't deny the miracle. That left them in a conundrum. And, uh, and the things there. All right. We move on to point six, and we look at his parents today. Verses 18 through 23, his parents. As far as we know, his parents had done a pretty good job. They raised him. All the indicators are that he, uh, he responds to uh, the light of the world message. He responds to a rabbi's instructions. He recognizes a prophet. In fact, even in his confrontation with the Pharisees, he communicates an awareness of truth. So I believe he's been grounded from the script, in the scriptures from his childhood. So, uh, verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been born blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them, saying, is this your son, who you say was born blind? You know how insulting that is? <laughs> All right, you say he was born blind. How does he now see? So, they're brought in, and right away, 
the line of questioning, of course, begins in a confrontational mode. His parents answered them and said, (laughs) just kind of feel how careful they're being here. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. That that much they'll admit to. (laughs) Everything else, though, they plead the fifth. As uh, how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. (laughs) All right. Uh, Yes, we are his parents, but he is legally an adult son. He is of age. Legally able to utter testimony to be admitted in their uh, in their venues. They don't want to they don't want any part to do with this. And we find out why they said this because they were afraid. They said this because they were afraid. In other words, they said, ask him now whether they knew or not. Is debatable. I think they knew by the time uh, all of this took place and by the time the they uh, learned who the parents were, and by the time the subpoenas were issued, and by the time the officers were sent, and by the time the parents were brought in, the man himself would have had time to go find his parents and, and let them know and, and tell them the truth. Um, if he's as godly as I believe he is, then uh, his parents are a big part of that. Clearly, they're, sabag- they're, they're uh, synagogue attendees. So they are observant. They are devout. And uh, he would have had no reason to hide anything from them. And yet we're told that their denial is motivated by their fear. And that's important because that's another matter. We have to make sure that our theological blindness isn't hindering us from growth. We also have to make sure that our fears aren't blinding us from growth. So they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Immediate expulsion from the synagogue if you declare Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah. That was a first class, one way ticket out the door, banned from synagogue worship. All right, so point A then, if you want to spell this out in your notes. The parents were faithful synagogue attendees. But they feared the Jews more than they feared the Lord. And you understand the reference to the Jews is to the Jewish religious leaders. Undoubtedly, they themselves were also racially Jewish. The parents were faithful synagogue attendees, but they feared the religious leaders more than they feared the Lord. The idea of being kicked out of the synagogue was unthinkable. And so they plead the fifth. They refuse to testify. If um, this is common, this is testing this common to man, a a situation that church age believers will encounter. We have to figure out what are our attachments. What do we love more than the Lord our God? And if it comes down to one versus the other, when when push comes to shove, what gets pushed and what gets shoved? Here they have an opportunity to testify to the glory of Jesus Christ and to celebrate a miracle that God had accomplished through his son. And they fail. And we're told that their motivation is this human fear to these human beings. All right. So this is a failure on the part of the parents. And that's... um, 
something to consider in our own priesthood, in our own um, application. I don't know that their age has anything to do with it. I don't want to... Uh, I, I read a lot of commentaries that actually addressed that, that addressed their uh, their relative age, obviously, if they're old enough to have adult children themselves and what have you. I, I don't know that you can read that into it. I think anyone could have fear of the Jews. The the crowds had fear of the Jews back in the in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, and, and they weren't necessarily of any particular age. But we just see it for what it is. Secondly, the parents knew the truth. I'm convinced of that. The parents knew the truth. We're told in verse 23, for this reason, for this reason, his parents said he is of age, ask him. It is the only reason they said he is of age, ask him. For this reason, had they not been afraid, they could have testified otherwise and they would have testified otherwise. The parents knew the truth. But their testimony would have had consequences that they were unwilling to bear. Again, point B, the parents knew the truth, but their testimony would have consequences they were unwilling to bear. We're commanded. We have to count the cost. We have to understand. What soldier, what king goes to war without counting the cost and knowing whether he will prevail or not? Or building a tower without knowing if you can afford it or not? <laughs> I think we're about to learn that lesson ourselves. In terms of our church building project. Since we found out how much the land cost. And then how much. I'm talking about the actual dirt. And then uh, how much it's going to cost to move that dirt. And put in different dirt. And uh, spend on the on the dirt. Before we even put a building on the dirt. Pretty pricey dirt. As far as that goes. Well. If you know the truth. And you know the cost. It then comes down to your obedience, does it not? It comes down to your obedience. And your unwillingness or willingness. In this case, they failed the test. So for this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. We have the explanation of the fear in verse 22. And then we have the purpose clause in verse 23. It was for this reason they said what they said. Had that reason not been there, they would have said something else. I believe they knew the truth. They could have said something else. All right. So instruction opportunity number five. And uh, we see a failed test there. All right. Instruction opportunity number six comes in point seven. We're back to the man born blind again. Now he's going to learn some lessons from the angelic conflict. Point seven, instruction opportunity number six. The man born blind learns from the angelic conflict manipulations of the adversary. The man born blind, or if you want to call him anablepsis, A-N-A-B-L-E-P-S-A-S, anablepsis. <laughs> we'll probably get to heaven and find out his name was Bob. I'll say, why didn't you put that in the Bible? I've searched my whole life for a man named Bob in the Bible. The man born blind learns from the angelic conflict manipulations of the adversary. And he gets a chance to see this. He gets a chance, he's exposed to this immediately, and he picks up on it. He sees it for what it is. 
And it's, I think it's remarkable that he has the, the insight that he has. That, uh, you know, he's been blind all his life, but he's learned a lot. He's got a perspective to put two and two together. And, you know, maybe, it's, maybe he's got an advantage because he hasn't had physical sight all his, time, all his life and he's had to actually listen carefully to people. He's had time to think things through. He's had time to, to see through a lot of phoniness. Because he sure sees through it here. And in observing it for what it is, he's even able to um, push the right buttons. He tweaks them. When he says, oh, you guys want to become disciples of Jesus? Man. And what's remarkable is his parents were terrified of getting kicked out of the assembly. And he pushed the buttons for his own ejection seat. And he does that right here. You know, if, if you determine that, uh, that this is an assembly where the word's not being taught, where the truth is being suppressed, then why not get kicked out? You can walk out before they kick you out. All right, so let's take a look at that. The more I, I go through these verses, there's 11 verses here from 24 to 34. I keep thinking, you know, this man has some, some insight. And, and, and I know we're headed towards um, the, the pistuo exercise. I know we're headed towards the belief in verse 38 where he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. All right. And, and I realize that we read that and at face value and first glance, I think we just automatically assume that in verse 37, if he would have died in verse 37, he would have gone to hell. And if he dies in verse 38 or after, then he gets to go to heaven. That this is the moment of his conversion. This is the moment of his transference from darkness into light and his reception of eternal life and all of that. Um, and it may very well be. We'll, uh, we'll discuss that when we get to that point. Um, particularly, well, all right, let me tease you with it now then. Hold your finger there. Go back to chapter 20. And um, look at verse 8. John chapter 20 and verse 8, and you realize in the context here you're talking about Peter and John. The Apostle Peter and the Apostle John. And uh, the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene told him it was empty. And of course, men are usually thick, skeptical. They want to see it for themselves. So they, uh, they have a foot race, and uh, John's younger than Peter, so he beats him there. You know, Peter's over 40, probably. And uh, John's uh, a teenager in all likelihood here. So they go in the tomb. Wouldn't you know it? There's no body. He's gone. There's the face cloth wrapped up, rolled up in a place, very neat and tidy. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb also entered. He saw and believed so do you think uh, this was the moment of his conversion and regeneration? No, not for a minute. There are post-salvation exercises of faith that follow salvation as you gain additional information, as you trust in additional doctrinal promises, as you come to deeper um, 
come to uh, greater understandings of, of God's revelation. In fact, I believe there are more uses of pistuo applied to believers than the actual application of pistuo that takes an unbeliever into salvation status. So, back to chapter 9 then. We'll discuss this at greater length when we get to verse 38. When he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him, um, is this the, the moment of his of his salvation is this the moment when he received eternal life was he was he in darkness prior to this and uh anyway we'll discuss that here in a moment all right but first of all we've got an angelic conflict to deal with here uh let's read through from verse 24 to 34 a second time they the jewish religious leaders the pharisees called him called the man who had been blind and said to him give glory to god we know that this man is a sinner <laughs> you know, you'd like your defense attorney to stand up and say, objection, <laughs> leading the witness, right? Then he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And man, this, he's crossed the line with that one. That's where he stepped on it, right there. He crossed the line. So um, they reviled him. This is actually satanic language at work. Uh, Satan is the slanderer. He is the, the diabolos. He is uh, the one that, uh, this, this, <laughs> there's no place for this in the Christian way of life. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. They even have the card, card-carrying members. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. You know, we discussed this way back when. You remember when John the Baptist was ministering? And then Jesus came and got baptized, and then some of the disciples followed. They left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. Remember that? And we discussed, how come it's only some of the disciples that left John and followed Jesus? Why wasn't it everybody? <laughs> Why did the Baptists have anybody left after the baptism? Why didn't they all go and follow Jesus? Why did some stay with the baptizer? Why uh, are these, man's, uh, these uh, religious leaders so ensnared to Moses. They idolize Moses. Moses is their God. He is their, uh, they wouldn't put it that way, of course, but functionally, that's what it is. They follow the theology of a man as if he himself is God-breathed and inspired. All right, we're followers of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. As for this man, we do not know where he is from. Well, they actually do, but they deny what they know. So the man answered and said, well, here's an amazing thing. <laughs> and, and his language is so delightful because their language is full of reviling and slander and, and satanic terminology. His language, when he says here is an amazing thing, it's actually testifying to the miracle that was done. The word for miracle is a word for amazement. Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Well, isn't that amazing? How can, here's a miracle worker, and you guys are ignorant. Isn't this amazing? God is at work. 
and you know nothing about it. Now, I thought you guys were in touch with God. I thought you guys were religious leaders. I thought you guys were Bible teachers. How can God be at work and you don't know you don't have a clue what's going on? Well, here's an amazing thing. <laughs> All right. And it's it is such a um a statement of, of irony. It's like uh, Jacob running away from the promised land. And he's fleeing the, the land of promise, uh, telling total lies, you know, telling his father that he has to go find a wife somewhere. And, and really, he's just afraid that his brother's going to kill him. And so he leaves town and he's fleeing out of town. He goes to sleep and he puts a rock there for his pillow. And he, God speaks to him in a vision. He sees the ladder. This is where Bethel gets its name. He says, wow, God is in this place and I didn't know it. Well, now, why is that? God is in this place. Yes, that's true. But you haven't been in touch with God for quite some time now, have you, Jacob? And so that's what this man is saying here. Well, here's an amazing thing. He opened my eyes. He has done a work of God, and you guys are clueless. You do not know where he's from. We know. And he says, we know. Uh, To that, what he's saying here is, I know, and you should know. You do know, but you won't admit it. We know. To me, this we know right here testifies to the content of truth that he already had in his soul. He has a background for the Old Testament. He has a background for the promises of of Yahweh, Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing, he does his will and he hears him. He has a background with the nature of God. He knows about answered prayer. He knows about the fear of the Lord. He knows that. The Pharisees know that. They won't testify to it in Jesus' case, but they know it. He says, we know. Then he says, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a person born blind. How does he know that? Again, he's got a background with the scriptures. Got a background in in, uh, the uh, Old Testament, the law of Moses. And uh, I would suspect, you know, we don't have any idea how old this man is. The man born blind, he's an adult male, but 14 and up, you know, as far as uh, the, the Jewish culture was concerned. Um, but he's had time to investigate. He's had time to study the scriptures. I suspect, given that uh, he required people to read to him, right? He couldn't read for himself and have Braille Hebrew scrolls and whatnot back in the day. So... His mom's reading to him. His dad's reading to him. His rabbi's reading to him. Different people are reading to him. And he's learning, probably memorizing everything he hears. Fanny Crosby was blind and she memorized much of the Bible. And I would suspect that uh, he particularly asked to have things read to him about blind people, right? What do you mean the part about the the, the blind people, right? (laughs) It would be an interest to him. He's never heard of anyone born blind having their eyes open. Then he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is a historic miracle. The fact that it's been done is testimony to God's presence. If nothing else, the miracle itself demands a hearing. You have to to hear the message so that you can correlate the, the miracle to the message and decide whether this is of God or whether this is a... Uh, a satanic fraud well here's their answer you were born entirely in sins are you teaching us so they put him out 
Who do you think you are? It's the same thing they told Jesus. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? You were born entirely in sins. Since you were born blind, you're born cursed. You're born in darkness. Your life is in darkness. And who do you think you are teaching us? We're the rabbis. We're the scribes. We're the teachers. You're the blind beggar. Go away. And they kick him out. So they put him out. You know, the truth does hurt, doesn't it? He was teaching them. This, this blind man, formerly blind man, has content to communicate. All right. Well, conflict all throughout. Point A. The Pharisees couch their evil schemes in religious vocabulary. The Pharisees couch their evil schemes in religious vocabulary. Give glory to God. Think about all the manipulations, all of the satanic schemes in the world today, how many of them make use of the name of Jesus Christ. They misuse the name of Jesus Christ. They abuse the name of Jesus Christ. They use the name, they profess to know God, but they deny His power. They don't truly know Him. But boy, they can manipulate the guilt. They can twist the emotions. They can work in your heart and pull the strings. And oh, come on. Don't you love Jesus? (laughs) I told you about the uh, missions conference I went to. It was a denominational kind of situation. And their goal was to raise $50,000. And they fell short. They took an offering. This was a national conference. They had pastors and men there from all over the country. They uh, sent the deacons up the aisles and passing the plates and doing all that while the, the man got up and preached the offertory. And he was good. Oh, he was good. He's with the Lord now, by the way. This is My story's getting old. This is uh, about a 10-year-old story now at this point. 1999. Anyway, the man, the, the Baptist preacher that taught, oh, I didn't want to say Baptist, oh well. The Baptist preacher that taught the, uh, preached the offertory, he was good. And uh, we were several rows back, and, and I, was, I, was, I was not part of the denomination. I wasn't really invited there. I was a guest and kind of hanging on, watching. And uh, by the time that plate got to me, I felt horrible. I was scum, thinking, man. I can't believe I, I'm not I'm not shelling out bucks and signing over my whatever and and I mean I didn't love Jesus I, I needed to give more money I was anyway, that's how emotional the whole thing got and so they finished the room they came back they brought it up front they offered up a prayer praise Jesus for all this and that and then they dumped it all out there on the deal and they started counting it off while everybody was sitting there and they read the names. Bill, you know, so-and-so in this church in Montana, whatever. And, oh, here's 500 bucks. And, you know, praise Jesus. And then, oh, here's whatever, whatever. And here's a 1,000 bucks. Oh. And then they get to the end, and they were short. They didn't reach the 50,000. Oh, hang the head. And, oh, my goodness. Jesus, we're sorry. We love you, Jesus. And let's pray some more. Pray some more. And send the deacons back out again pass the plate again and he's preaching more scriptures and and you know we, we're so unspiritual things shall we not reap material things and on and on and on and on and it came back then the second time 
and they got their money. They got their money. They they cleared their fifty grand. In fact, I think they made. I don't know, numbers are getting fuzzy at this point. I think it was fifty grand. It might have been thirty thousand, but it was it was a big number. I thought. Anyway, couching schemes in religious vocabulary. What am I trying to say? <laughs> I'm not judging those men for what they're doing. I'm just discerning that. I'll never do anything like that. I'd be terrified to do something like that. And they've got to answer to Jesus Christ for what they did. I, all I know is in my ministry, I will never, never approach grace giving on that kind of a basis. Give glory to God. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Give glory to God. Testify that this sinner broke the Sabbath. That's what they wanted. They wanted his testimony to the breaking of the Sabbath. <laughs> that would give them accusation. Of course, they would need to find a second witness, but if they could bully this guy, they could find a second guy to bully. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. It's amazing. Now, of course, he's a sinner. Everybody has sinned. What's this about? So, subpoint B everybody has sinned, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've taught this before, but I thought it was worth repeating. Just like uh, we've taught, who are these Jews? I thought everybody was a Jew. <laughs> Jesus is a Jew. The disciples are Jews. The man born blind was Jewish. Uh, when you have, particularly in the Gospel of John, but in all the Gospels, the, the capital J Jews that you find here, these are the religious leaders. These are the authorities of the Jewish religious establishment headquartered in Jerusalem. Now, what are the sinners? Who are the sinners? Everybody's a sinner. Well, no, sinners is a, is a precise term that references non-observant Jews. Sinners, to the Pharisees, are characterized by a manner of life that makes no attempt to do otherwise. Now, everybody sins. But they had a title for these non-observant Jews. They were sinners. They weren't Gentiles. They were sinners. Sometimes they get paired up together. Or they weren't tax collectors. Sometimes they get paired up together too. Well, if you treat somebody like a Gentile and a tax collector, or you treat somebody like a Gentile and a sinner, or you treat somebody like a tax collector and a sinner, these were their favorite epithets that they would attack people with. You couldn't call them a Gentile because they were racially Jewish. So what do you call them? You call them sinners. They are not observing the law of Moses. They are not observant. They are uh, racially Jewish, culturally Jewish, but they're not observant of the Judaism of their day. This is... Too early to properly call it rabbinic Judaism, but it's the foreshadowing of rabbinic Judaism, this Pharisaical Judaism of the first century. Those who did not observe the law in detail and therefore were shunned by observers of traditional precepts. They're contrasted with those who are God-fearing. If you look at verse 31, there's a contrast there. God does not hear sinners. If anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. There's the contrast between the fear of the Lord and the sinner. Those who did not observe the law in detail and therefore were shunned by observers of traditional precepts. 
See, for, for these legalists who are constantly going to synagogue every week, every Sabbath, they're in the synagogue, they're learning their Torah, they're memorizing their... They're not really memorizing the Torah. Um, they're memorizing the Mishnah. They're me- memorizing the traditions about the Torah. They're memorizing the precepts of the rabbis of Gamaliel and, and Hillel and all these guys and what they had to say about the Torah. And so those that did not observe the law, they did not observe the precepts, they did not participate in the festivals, they did not, they did not uh, offer the offerings and all of that, they, you know, we would just simply call them today secular, non-religious, non-observant. And I think the bulk of the modern state of Israel falls in that category. They are secular, non-observant Jews. Those that are observant are, are broken down into the... Uh, Reformed, reorganized, and um, and uh, I'm sorry, reformed, conservative, and orthodox camps. Those are the three divisions of of Judaism, by and large. All right. You know, we have the same thing today. Believers that are non-observant, they're born again, but they're living daily life. They're they're living in the world or for the world. They don't really bother much with church. That, you know, Christmas maybe, Easter, a wedding or funeral on occasion, a couple other times during the year, as long as it's not too inconvenient. But there's other things going on. They're culturally yeah, moral people, good people, pay their taxes, faithful to their marriage, um, moral kind of people. But they're not observant. They're not diligent and so the term in this century, the term the Pharisees developed was they're sinners. And they, they treated these sinners like they treated Gentiles and tax collectors. They had to separate from them. They, had, they didn't want to be defiled by them. Their system of holiness was such that it prevented them from associating with Gentiles, tax collectors, or sinners. So we know this man is a sinner. See, if they can accuse him of a sinner, they can accuse him of being a, a Sabbath breaker. Then they had all they needed was a second witness, and they could put him on trial. All right. Thirdly, point C. Anablepsis refused to characterize Jesus' spiritual walk. Remember, Anablepsis is my nickname for the man born blind. Anablepsis refused to characterize Jesus' spiritual walk, but repeatedly testified to Jesus' spiritual fruit. I'm not going to call him a sinner. Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know. (laughs) I used to be blind, but now I can see. I once was blind, but now I see. You know, he had no clue that his quote would show up in a Christian hymn someday. Refuse to characterize Jesus' spiritual walk. Do we characterize people? We lump them into categories, dismiss them as, as uh, what, whatever. Or do we identify the fruit they're bearing? You know, we could be very dismissive of somebody and just say, oh, well, because of the church they go to. Oh, he's a Nazarene. What does he know? Doesn't know anything. Nazarene, he probably thinks he can lose his salvation. He probably is all mixed up on his... Uh, uh, soteriology and on his spirituality and oh, he's got a, a really confusing theology and background all that. I don't have anything to do with him. 
Really? Has he done anything to edify? Has he blessed you in any way? You know, if I was truly prejudiced, I could never again sing Wonderful Grace of Jesus. Know that hymn? Helder Lelanus? Helder Lelanus was a Nazarene pastor. We sing his hymns. I'm very blessed by his hymns. He bore fruit, continues to bear fruit. Every time we sing his hymn, we bear fruit. And uh, when he died, he, uh, he was eternally secure. <laughs> and that's when he learned about it, probably, <laughs> I would expect. So instead of just characterizing people and lumping them into categories, let's testify if we observe fruit being born. And that's what this man said. He said, you know what? He healed me. He was used by God the Father to accomplish a work of power. And that's what uh, Anablepsis is testifying to. Well, let's ask the question again. The Pharisees pursued a tactic. Point D. The Pharisees pursued a tactic of repeated questioning. If all you want to do is just write down point D, repeated questioning. It's a tactic. And it's a deceitful tactic. It's a... It's a... Uh, <laughs> In fact, it was a, a, use while, a, a useful tactic, MP interrogation tactic. Civilian law enforcement does the same thing. Ask the same question over and over and over again. Find different ways to ask it, but ask the same question over and over again. See if you can get a different answer. Or see if you can get something that's not quite the same. And then poke holes in the differences between the two different answers. And, and try to widen that wedge a little bit more. See if you can break down where the inconsistencies are. This is the repetition method. This is also the wear them down method. <laughs> this, uh, children use this message a lot. And, and typically, by the 445th time you ask something, sometimes the person is just so tired of being asked, okay, fine, go ahead. Quit asking. Now, depending on the context, children and parents being one, what you're observing there could be flat-out rebellion. It could be they didn't like the answer they got the first time, the second time, the third time, the first 444 times. But they keep asking, keep asking, keep asking, hoping to get a different answer. In that application, then, yeah, you're dealing with rebellion 444 times over. You've had your answer. However, Jesus says this is a mechanism for prayer in Luke chapter 18. Jesus cited the methodology positively in terms of prayer diligence in Luke 18. And it says, you to go to the Father in prayer and ask, and ask, and ask, and ask again. Keep asking. And in the parable, he uses an unrighteous judge as the illustration. But then he, and you think, well, how can he use an unrighteous judge as a positive illustration? But he does. He says, that's how prayer works. Keep asking. Keep asking. Luke 18, verses 1. Are you familiar with that? I'm almost out of time, but we can, we can take a moment. Look over to Luke 18. Mm, yeah, we got time. I think we got time.
He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And this parable tells the story. And it's a motivation to pray without ceasing. And, and to keep us from just praying once and then giving up. Oh, well, didn't get my answer. Right? We're praying for this church move. And, well, he hasn't answered yet. Oh, well, give up on that. No, we keep praying. We keep praying. We keep praying. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. She wants a restraining order, we'd call it today. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. She'll get the court order she wants. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. So the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? See, there's a contrast. Wearing down the unrighteous judge, you get what you want for the unrighteous reasons of the unrighteous judge. But the persistence to the righteous God of the universe, you'll wear him out too. Because the mechanism he put out there is the mechanism he wants to see exercised. So will he delay? Long over them will he not bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. Quickly. All right. So this was their tactic. They keep asking, well, tell us again. Tell us again. How did he open your eyes? Tell us again. Hmm. Point E. Anablepsis won't change his answer. He won't change his answer, but he tweaks the Pharisees with his suggestion that they want to become disciples of Jesus. (laughs) He wouldn't change his answer. He's not going to give them an answer they want to hear. And he finds an answer they definitely don't want to hear. (laughs) You don't want to become his disciple too, do you? Oh my goodness. I really wonder. It'd be neat to see this on DVD when we get to heaven and find out what the... You know, because you can read the words, but you can't really see the expression on his face. And we're left imagining if he was able to have a very innocent, honest look on his face. Oh, why? Do you want to become his disciples too? Man. Man. Well, what's their answer to this? We've got three subpoints and then point eight. We've got five minutes. Um, well, no. The Pharisees angrily defend their Mosaic orthodoxy. They cling to their theology. The Pharisees angrily defend their Mosaic orthodoxy. Why would they want to become a disciple of Jesus? What a, what a demotion. What a step down in their minds. They're already at the pinnacle. They have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They are the pinnacle of their of of humanity. As far as they're concerned, the the believers that will have maximum reward at the uh, kingdom of David are them. In their minds, 
They are the law. As for the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. They were the pinnacle of righteousness. As to the righteousness of the law, a Pharisee. What else was there? That was maximum reward. I think sometimes believers get it in their mind that the, the, the maximum rewarded believers at the judgment seat of Christ are going to be the uh, ice categorical doctrinal uh, bracket type Bible teaching believers. Well, think again. <laughs> Guess again. Don't defend your orthodoxy as if that has meaning for anything. Verses 28 and 29, we read it already. We're from Moses. We know where Moses is from. We know Moses is a prophet. Yeah, but he's also the prophet that spoke of another prophet who is going to come. <laughs> he has said a prophet like unto Moses would come. Anablepsis happily restates his testimony and his convictions based on that testimony. This is like, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able. He simply repeats his testimony. Jesus healed me. He opened my eyes. That's what he testifies to. Well, here's an amazing thing. <laughs> Anablepsis happily restates his testimony. You know, if, uh, if you give your, your testimony, if you give the gospel and the person rejects it, then you don't have to change anything. Say, all right, that's fine. They rejected it. If you want to hear it next time, I'll tell you the same old story again next time. Same story, different verse. <laughs> you want to know what he did for me? Sent his son to die on the cross so I could receive eternal life. That's my testimony. Happily restates his testimony. His convictions based on that testimony. The Pharisee's final conclusion is to evict him. Kick him out. Evict him from their presence, their immediate presence, and I believe to expel him from synagogue participation as well. They cast him out. They put him out, we're told in verse 34. Expelled. Expelled. The Pharisees' final conclusion is to evict Anablepsis from their presence and likely ban him from the synagogue participation as well. Expelled. To be honest, he's probably glad he's getting expelled. I knew a kid in high school that was glad to get expelled. In fact, he um, deliberately got expelled. He got, um, he was already on probation, and he knew that his next infraction was going to send him to the alternative high school. And uh, a friend of his committed an infraction, and he said, "Okay." If my buddy's going to go to that school, I'm going to go there too. So he did. Well, I don't think Anablepsis is all that heartbroken over being expelled here from the Pharisee teaching. Remember, the Pharisee teaching has some problems. The Sadducee teaching has some problems. They're not teaching with authority. They're not teaching like Jesus is teaching. And this man's got a taste of Jesus' teaching and he doesn't want to go back to the Pharisee or Sadducee or any kind of other teaching. Which concludes with point eight, instruction opportunity number seven. The man born blind learns that the Pharisees are more blind than he ever was. Verses 35 through 41, the man born blind learns that the Pharisees are more blind than he ever was. 
And we are at the top of the hour. There's some details in here. But I think it's pretty self-explanatory. There's actually a fascinating text criticism exercise in verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Is it huios tu theu or is it huios tu anthropu? Is it Son of Man or Son of God in that verse? And manuscripts go back and forth on it. If you hear this morning with the King James or New King James, you probably have Son of God there. But um, regardless, they're used interchangeably throughout the Gospel of John. That's the point. So uh, the particular use here is not as vital as other matters. When he does believe that this is the Son of God or the Son of Man, he believes and he worships. So he understands the deity, only God, only Yahweh is worthy of worship. And he worships Jesus and Jesus accepts the worship. Pharisees, though, aren't uh, falling to the ground and worshiping. They're uh, professing their vision. (laughs) We see, we see. We're not blind, are we? Yes, you are. You're more blind than ever before because you think you see. You know, the hardest people who ever give the gospel to are those that think they're already there. They think they're already in the right church. They're already in the right situation. And they're blinder than the basic pagan unbeliever on the street who knows he's no good. The self-righteous religious person is more blind and is a harder nut to crack in terms of giving the gospel. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for the story of the man born blind. And, Father, what a testimony. I thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.